It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman To hear what they all have to say Welcome back to the Kick to Kick podcast. Here we are, the finals, Charlie. 1984, the finalists. It is, I mean, we're here, to, Charlie, to talk about 1984, the second second part of the season. Oh, yeah. Thank you for joining us. Um, so, yeah, we've already talked about the first part of 1984, the uh, the teams that finished 12th to 6th. Let's get stuck into those teams that made the finals. Now, Absolutely. Though. Before we do that, let me just give you a quick recap, Timmy, just in case you can't remember. The Wooden Spooners this year were St Kilda. Then we had North Melbourne in 11th, Sydney in 10th, Melbourne 9th, Richmond 8th, Footscray 7th, and Geelong just missing out. Well, Footscray and Geelong really just missing out. Yeah. Um, so, let's talk about the, uh, those, those squeakers into 5th place, and it was the Lions. Wow, and this is a great story as well. Yeah. So, same as the, those other two teams uh, with 11 wins and 11 losses, but 102.6%. Ca- uh, captained by Gary Wilson, coached by All right, some debutants include Doug Barwick, Dean Turner, Craig McGrath, Tim Peckin, Bernie Harris, and Graham Osborne, brother of Richard Osborne. Uh, now, the Lions didn't get their first win until four, which was against the Dogs. Uh, in this game, Matt Rendell returned from injury only to dislocate his shoulder and miss a further six games, so oh. bad luck. But the Lions won their first match for the season at the Junction Oval. Gary Pert was outstanding at fullback, holding Simon Beasley goalless, and Tim Peckin made a very impressive debut. And Mick Conlon perhaps enjoyed his best game ever, scoring 10 goals from 14 kicks. Ooh. Uh, and now there was another five-game losing streak following that. Now, at this point of the season, the Lions were one win, nine losses, Charlie. One win, nine losses? Yep. Wow. Round 10, um, they played St Kilda at Waverley, and they had this game won by half time. Side bottom best on ground with 24 disposals, five marks, while Quinlan took eight marks and kicked six goals, five. Round 11, they got another win against North Melbourne, this time by 14 points. Nice. So we're already halfway through the season and the Lions have won two games and lost nine. Things look dire, but we are talking about them here in the finals. We certainly are. So how did that happen? Right. Round 12, it kicks off in a real cliffhanger at VFL Park or Waverley. The Lions kicked the only goal scored in the last quarter to tip out the Blues by five points. Fitzroy deserved its win as it generally outplayed Carlton for most of the day and led at each quarter break. Reserve ruckman Glenn Coleman was universally judged best on ground. 29 disposals, 10 marks and 18 hitouts doing it for him. Round 13, they continued their revival with a come-from-behind victory against the fifth-place Tigers at the MCG. Paul Ruse was the star of this game with 28 disposals and 7 marks. But this is the game... But Matt Randell, back from injury again, did another injury. Had injured himself a third time. The Lions were now only two games outside the five, and coach Robert Walls expressed confidence in his team, you know, maybe we could still play finals. But losses to the Dogs and Swans and Bombers then followed, so three further losses after four in a row. Um, so following the loss to the Bombers, they sat 10th on the ladder, and Robert Walls implored his men to try and salvage something from the season. Yeah. Look, let's, let's try to win five of the last six games. 
And three or four players stood up and said, why can't we win all six? Nice. That's what they set out to do. So round 17 at Junction Oval in the wettest round of the season, the Lions scored an upset win with a 10-point squeaker over the Hawks. They kicked the first three goals of the game and led by four points at quarter time. They then held the Hawks to just one goal in the second. In the second half, the Lions made better use of the conditions with Barwick, Wilson and Carlson swamping the Hawks players. Quinlan ended with three goals and the final score in the final margin in that game, round 17, was the Lions by 10 points over the reigning premiers. Round 18, the Lions led easily from start to finish at the MCG against the Demons. Quinlan took nine marks and kicked nine goals, five. Oof. Rendell was dominant in the ruck back again from injury with 20 disposals, 12 marks and 28 hitouts. Um, journalist Malcolm Conn declared that Fitzroy were a genuine chance to make the five, even though they still remained two, going, two games outside with only four matches to go. Round 19, they took a, they played against the Magpies, never an easy task, no. especially this late in the season, um, who were sitting fourth on the ladder, and the Lions demolished them, leading at one stage early on by 11 goals. Osborne dominated with 20 disposals and three goals for. Gary Pert was equally impressive. We roll on. Round 20. The Lions strengthened their shot at a finals run with a win over fifth place Geelong. Set up with a seven goal to four, five quarter. That's, that's what you call the classic eight point game, that, isn't it? It is, it really is. So set up with a seven goal to four third quarter that angered Cats coach Tommy Hafey, but moved the Lions to within a game of top five. Quinlan kicked five, Gary Pert four in a 38 point win. Round 21, Bernie Quinlan dominated this game with 11 goals from 12 kicks at the MCG. This was the highest number of goals by a Fitzroy player since 1928. Jack Moriarty. Hey! Um, this win was oh a... Oh, God, you've just taken me down memory. <laughs> that makes me happy. This, one, this win was against the Kangaroos. Um, the Lions, though, remained seventh on the ladder with one game remaining, sitting behind the Dogs and the Cats. God, so everything's got to go their way. Yeah. So, round 22. They need to win against St Kilda and hope that Geelong lose to the Hawks and the Dogs lose to the Magpies. Um, Which isn't... I mean, it's not like you're hoping there's an upset. No. Yeah. Um, and the other part of this story is it's the last ever game at the Junction Oval. Oh. Ground rationalisation is happening. Um, it's quite fitting that it's against St Kilda as well. So St Kilda Fitzroy at the Junction. Um, and super boot Bernie Quinlan nailed five goals in this. Um, early on, he kicked his 100th goal. Taking a spectacular mark over Danny Frawley and Michael Roberts to drill his hundredth, following which hundreds of kids swarmed onto the ground to congratulate the champ. Nice. Um, and the Lions and all the planets aligned. The Lions won by fifty-seven. We know that Collingwood beat the Dogs, and we know that the Hawks beat the Cats. So the Lions incredibly have not sat in the top five all season, but after the final round, they are. They have come from one win and nine. Losses yeah, to I'm, make the finals. The first, the first and only time that's ever happened. Yeah, I was gonna, I'm surprised people weren't tearing up their memberships at that yeah. stage. Yeah, seriously. Um, and I should also mention that uh, Bernie Quinlan was cheered, uh, cheered off after the game, admitting he felt plenty of relief on scoring his 100th goal. But I bet. Um, riding high on six straight wins into the finals. Yeah, uh, incredible Cinderella story. Yeah, that's amazing. So it hasn't happened since. Um, it has never happened. Not that poor. No. I mean, we had that one a few years ago where Richmond had to win their last 10 games to make finals yes. and did that. Yeah, but they, then, they already were okay. Like, they hadn't had such a terrible start to the year. I don't right? think as terrible, but that's yeah. along those same lines. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Amazing. Um, so, our lead kick, goal kicker at Fitzroy this year, not unsurprisingly, Bernie Quinlan with 105. 
huge. That's in, including finals, obviously. And the Mitchell Medal in 1984 went to Ross Thornton, um, which then takes us up to fourth place. And in a position they seem to be sitting quite comfortably, that was Collingwood with 13 wins, nine losses, and a percentage of 109.1. Coached by John Cahill, captained by Mark Williams. A very South Australian flavour there to the list. Yeah, isn't there? All right, so some debutantes, and we've got a big one to talk about. Uh, we've got Mark Beers, son of Brian Beers, who was a 1958 Premiership player. Dale Woodhall, Darren McLean, Neville Shaw, Scott Knight, Alan Ede, Ron McEwen, Michael Irwin, and Darren Mullane. Lots of uh, lots of new blood in the pies this year. So you said Darren McLean and Darren Mullane. Yeah, I did. Wow. So, yes, Darren. Pants Mullane. Uh, strongly built, aggressive, and boasting considerable pace. Darren Mullane was a wingman par excellence. He commenced his senior career with Dandenong in the VFA and displayed fine ability. Uh, the Hawks seemingly won the race to sign him and he was invited to train with the, their team at the Glenferry headquarters. However, Mullane didn't like the atmosphere at the club and opted to return to Dandenong. Uh, Collingwood offered him a second chance to break into lead ra- league ranks and finding the atmosphere at Victoria Park more congenial than at Hawthorne, he seized that opportunity eagerly. Mm. Culture. Indeed. There's some other uh, other new players at Collingwood as well, I should mention. Rot- Rotten Ronnie Andrews came from Essendon. They poached David Cloak and Jeff Raines from Richmond. Um, Richmond actually tried to poach Peter Dacos as well. They were supposedly offering him a 10-year deal. Um but they so the Tigers ended up taking Phil Walsh though, mm-hmm. um, and Dacos stayed with the Pies. We know that Bill Picken was lost to the Swans. Um, now there's lots of off-season stuff, so off-field stuff happening at the Pies as well. Okay. The uh, the new Magpies have come in. To when try is to, there not, Timothy? I, I know. Yeah. The new Magpies have come in and are trying to you know, promise. A, they promised a premiership and they've yep. put all these things in place, but you know they've got to make finals, which you know they've done now, but. Is that going to be enough? There's pressure on John Cahill already. Can he get the job done? Um, if he can't get the job done, then Ronald McDonald, their president's under pump as well. So there's all this happening in the background. Round one, after all that. Round one, um, against the Demons at Victoria Park. The D's shot to a 27-point lead midway through the opening quarter. But Cahill flung the magnets around and Jim McAllister and Greg Phillips helped the Pies kick the last seven goals of the match and set up a 13-point win. And that's that match that they didn't want to sell to the MCG. Oh, yeah, yeah of course. Round two, the Pies had plenty, had a pretty easy 93-point win over the Saints, led by Ricky Byram and Peter Dacos, although Peter Dacos was, was suspended for two weeks for unduly rough play. The Bombers then smashed them, followed by the Swans beating them at Victoria Park. And then, you know, the Vultures are circling. <laughs> um, so with the Vultures circling, um, Cahill was under the pump. So he called on John Bertrand to come and address the team, inspire them before the game against the Blues. Okay. Yep. Yep. The Pies started slightly better Doing than the Blues. Doing it against all odds. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. The Pies started slightly better than the Blues, leading by a goal. Dacos helped to maintain a two-point lead at halftime. In this game, Tony Shaw was excellent in tagging the dominator, Wayne Johnson. And the game was still in the balance late. Late in the game, the Pies held a one-goal lead. A throw-in saw a long kick by Malin to a contest between uh, Ralph, Warren Ralph and uh, McCormack. An extremely dubious free kick was awarded for a high contact on Carlton's Warren Ralph. The siren sounded with Ralph close to a 45-degree angle on goal, but not far out, like 20 metres out. Mm-hmm. So Collingwood players gathered around the mark, jumping wildly, desperate to distract the Blues full forward. Ralph pushed his shot just to the right of the goal umpire. 
who with no hesitation signaled the point uh, and a stirring Collingwood victory. But there's still, like, you can see footage of this game. It's not conclusive whether it's a point or a goal. Like, oh, really? Some people think it's a goal. Some people think it's a point. Um, I'm not sure. Really? Yeah. Anyway, Collingwood get the win here. The naysayers, the vultures are at the door. We, yeah. we, can, we can hold them off for a little bit. Round six against the Roos at Victoria Park. The Pies built up a commanding 31-point advantage halfway through the game, but then had to withstand a spirited comeback from the Roos. Dacos was his brilliant best with 31 disposals, the final margin being 21 points. Round seven was their best win at Cardinia Park in 25 years. Although they frittered away a 37-point lead in the third quarter and seemed destined for a loss, it was Cloak and Bruce Abernathy who took over and led them to a 51-point win. I should also mention they got Bruce Abernathy from North Melbourne. There's lots happening. There's Seriously. lots. Want some more stuff that's happening? Yeah, go oh, on. Well, so while all this was happening, um, the Pies decided they needed a Ruckman and they set their sights on Demon's backup Ruckman, Glenn McLean. Hey. And there was a centre of controversy over his attempt early in the season to move from Melbourne to Collingwood. Uh, this clearance wrangle went to the Supreme Court and McLean was eventually let go by Melbourne for a trade which saw the Demons get Tony Keenan. Um, so, yeah, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Yep. But, this, yeah, more off-field stuff. And it was like, they were deciding, do we play him like Fashini got played at St Kilda? Like, what's the league going to do if we play him? Um, round nine, the Pies were far from impressive in beating the lackluster Lions at Victoria Park by 27 points. But Peter McCormack did a great job in shutting down Bernie Quinlan while Jeff Raines also started for his new club. Round 10 was a disappointing loss to the Dogs after being up by 38 points in the third quarter. Oh. That's the one where someone handballed it over to Greg Phillips and Simon Beasley intercepted to kill Oh, that's right, yeah. 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 Um, round 12, they beat a brave St Kilda team by a goal. Dacos again, excellent. Um, and around this time, Dacos... Peter Dacos was getting regularly tagged and sought some help. So Bobby Rose is back at the club now, told him, train harder and run more. It's simple, but I guess effective as well. Yeah. Round 14, they beat the Swans by 31 points. Jim McAllister kicked seven and Tony Shaw was again well, excellent. Especially in the in those days, sorry to go back, but especially in those days where we weren't having these continuous rotations off the bench, if you're fitter than your tagger, yeah. you win. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, around this time... Glenn McLean, who was with Collingwood, was officially training and playing. He played in the reserves, but not the seniors until round 15. They played him in the reserves because they didn't want to risk losing premiership points. Yeah. Um, but he came into the side for round 15 and round 16, um, which were his only two games for Collingwood after all that. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> yeah. Round 16, the Roos controlled the first half of the match at the MCG against the Pies with 18 scoring shots in the first half, but only led by three goals. The Pies slammed on six to take control of the match in the third quarter, and they ran away with it to win the la in the last by 45 points. Gary Shaw, not Tony, uh, kicked five. There's nice. A few, there's a few Shaws kicking around. In round 17, it was a low-scoring game. The Pies' defense kept held the Cats to four goals, five, and although they only kicked six themselves from 25 scoring shots, they won by 26 points. Tony Shaw, 34 possessions. Round 18, they slammed the Tigers at Victoria Park, although the final margin of six goals flattered the Tigers, who were more than 10 goals down at one point. Round 19, the Collingwood players went in overconfident against the Lions, who beat the Pies by 42 points and were on their roll, we know about. Round 20, they won again, this time against the Demons, but this was followed by a loss to the Hawks. In the final round, they beat the Dogs to deny them a spot in finals, winning by 43 points and probably getting revenge on that shock loss they suffered at the hands of the Dogs early in the season. Yeah. Um, and so after two years out of finals, the Pies are back. Back where they belong. Yeah. Well, where they think they belong. Is this good enough for the for the president? Is this good enough uh, to keep John Cahill as coach? We'll talk about that later. We certainly will. 
Uh, so the lead goal kicker down at Collingwood this year was uh, the captain, Mark Williams, with 53. It was very much shared around, though. Lots of guys in the 30s and 20s there with their goals. And the Copeland Trophy in 84 went to one of the Shores, Tony. Tony he had a great game. Yeah. Great season. Uh, not unsurprising there. So that takes us up to third spot where we have the Blues. Uh, sitting with 13 wins, 9 losses as well. Um, but a very healthy percentage of 115.8. Um, coached by David Parkin, captained by Wayne Johnston. The Dominator. Um, some debutants include David Honeybun. Great name. Wayne Blackall, Fraser Murphy, Warren Ralph, Ian, Mul- Mul- Ian Muller. Tom Elvin, who was my best friend growing up, was a Carlton supporter, and he bloody loved Tommy Elvin, so of course I hated him. <laughs> uh, and Peter Dean. Tell us a bit about Peter Dean. Peter Dean, yes. So originally Peter Dean was from South Bendigo. Uh, typically he was used on a half-back flank where his key strengths of his athleticism, toughness around the ball, and exceptional endurance were very much to the fore. Great. Um, all right, round one against the Kangaroos at the Waverley. Carlton skipper Wayne Johnson had Blues fans screaming with delight as he turned on a scintillating display up forward. Johnson was at his elusive best and booted five goals as he led Carlton's massacre of the Kangaroos. In a great day for the Blues, Warren Ralph, in his debut, in his debut, debut game, yeah. kicked nine goals. Oh, it's very uh, Colman-esque. Yep. And Carlton recorded their highest ever score and greatest winning margin against North Melbourne. That final score was 31 goals, 13, 199. Oh. That margin, 137 points wow. against the team that finished on top the season before. 137 points. Yep. Jeez. Kicking off the season. Round two, a barnstorming 10-goal first half by the Blues and WA recruit Warren Ralph, six goals, staved off the gallant Fitzroy, who got within a point midway through the last term but couldn't find the clincher in a skillful high-scoring contest at the Junction Oval. Round four, the Tigers stuck with the Blues for three quarters but were blown away by eight goals to win in the last term as the dominator, Wayne Johnson, starred in the centre of the MCG. Johnson and Ken Hunter booted five goals each for Carlton with fullback Jeff Southby clearly best on ground in one of his last games. Round six, when the Blues were struggling against the Saints, it was the dominator again who set a fine example with his scintillating style and a 14-point win. Round seven at the MCG, the Demons piled on six goals to two for a 22-point lead at quarter time. And by the main break, the difference had blown out to 41 points. Those days. But coach David Parkin ripped into his troops at halftime and a better third quarter reduced the margin to four goals. But the Demons had their tails up and were looking like winners. Enter Warren Ralph. Two enormous goals from around 50 metres sparked a revival and the Blues powered home with 18 minutes of unstoppable football to roll over the Demons by 17 Ugh. points. Barassi would have been furious. Wouldn't he just? Um, for the round nine match against the Bombers, the Carlton Cheer Squad went on strike for this match with no banner prepared. Mm. I, I don't know why at this stage. Um, and they lost that match to the Bombers anyway. Round 10, Carlton proved yet again that the SCG is one of their favourite grounds with no mercy all the way win against the hapless Swans. Cooker Malice, Reed, and Meldrum appeared impassable on the day and there were no big scores among the starved Swans forwards. The Blues won by 52 points. Round 11, Carlton started warm favourites against the Bulldogs, but the Dogs were tenacious in the great first quarter and led 6 goals 3 to 6 goals at the first break. Only then did Carlton click into top gear, piling on 5 goals straight. The Blues led by 37 points at the main break and held the Dogs at arm's length for the rest of the match. Final margin was 34. Round 13, Carlton's Rod Ashman played the game of his life against Geelong. He led the band of small men from the Blues camp who swarmed the Cats from start to finish. He collected 30 points... 
He collected 30 kicks and six handballs, but it was the way he set up the play of his teammates that made it such a, made him such a good player. Um, round 14, the game against the Tigers was won by Carlton's Mosquito Fleet of Ashman, Buckley and Marku and Murphy with the assistance and of a dominant ruck. Ashman and Murphy kicked 11 goals between them and Wayne Johnson ruled the middle of Princess Park as Carlton smashed the helpless Tigers by 115 points. This remains Carlton's greatest ever winning margin over Richmond. Nice. Traditional rivals. How Richmond have fallen so quickly, so... I know. Is, yeah, beyond me. Round 15 against Collingwood after an even first quarter, the Blues broke Collingwood wide open, kicking six goals to one in the second term to set up a 30-point advantage that was then held for the rest of the game. Um, Rod Austin, Bruce Dool and Val Perovich led a watertight defence. Round 17, Melbourne was deluged by rain and Princess Park got its fair share before the Carlton-Melbourne battle. The Blues adapted much better than the Demons and kept them to a lowly three behinds until half-time, while they managed four goals six and held the advantage until the final siren. Carlton's small players in Buckley and Ashman dominated around the packs and Melbourne had no answer for them. Round 20 against the Kangaroos at Princess Park. At quarter time, David Parkin was disgusted with his team's performance with the wind that he hardly spoke to them. As Parkin ran back to the coach's box, the players gathered around and whatever was said worked. They played a second quarter as though it was their final. They ran out 13-point winners and this was Jeff Southby's farewell game uh, to his home crowd as well. And round 22, taking on the Swans. Uh, it was an even first half. The Blues dominated the third term, but wasteful kicking for goal restricted out their lead to eight points at the last change. Enter Ruckman, Wow Jones, Warren Jones, who hauled down three big pack marks up forward and kicked two telling goals while the Blues piled on seven majors in the last 18 minutes to roll away with a 36-point win. In a pretty standard Carlton season. Yeah. Of that team back then. It, yeah, it feels a bit sort of, this is the way, this is what we do. This is what we do. Yeah. Uh, so lead goal kicker at Carlton was the newbie Warren Ralph with 55 in 14 games. Not a bad start. Not a bad, not a bad, not little, a bad little start. And the John Nichols Medal in 1984 went to Bruce Dool for the fourth time. Old man Dool. You apparently can teach an old dog new tricks, Timmy. <laughs> Huge. Nice. Um, so that takes us up the ladder to second spot where we have Hawthorne with 17 wins. Five losses, 131.7%. Coached by Alan Jeans, captained by Lethal Lee Matthews. What a combination. Oh, Um, all right, the Hawks, the dominant Hawks of the 80s is what we're talking about. Debutants include Russell Morris, Ross Lester-Smith, Paul Abbott, James Morrissey and Shane McGrath. The reigning Premiers, Hawthorne had an expected win over the Swans at Princess Park to open the season. Of well, it probably wasn't as easy as the 35-point margin suggests, but Chris Mew did a great shutdown job on uh, David Rhys-Jones and Lethal Lee was Mr. Reliable as ever. Regulation? Would you call it a regulation win, Timmy? It sounds like so, yeah, it. It's getting the job done. Round two in a grand final rematch from 1984, the Bombers proved no pushover. Although it was the Hawks again who triumphed, this time by only one goal. Uh, it was thanks to Hawks' young duo, Burton and Langford, who kicked eight goals between them. Round three against the Ds at the MCG. The first half saw Hawthorne doing just what they had to do and Melbourne plodding along behind them. Uh, nobody batted an eyelid when the margin hit 32 points at half-time. In fact, most expected the Hawks to go on to a massive victory, but the Ds did hit back. Uh, Templeton kicked a goal, putting the Ds in front in the last quarter, but the Hawks suddenly realised they had to wake up and register the one-goal win. Bit of the, uh, the, the old rabbit in the hair there. Mm. 
Round four, the Hawks were never in trouble against the Saints with a 10-goal win. Matthews with four goals and 29 possessions. Round five, the Hawks remained unbeaten with a 47-point win over the Dogs. The Hawthorne attack was quick in penetrating the Dogs' defence in what was Lethal Lee's 300th match and Michael Tuck's 250th. Chris Mew also did a great job in shutting down Simon Beasley. Round six, the Hawks finally lost their first game of the season. Uh, that game was to Tigers by 39 points at Waverley. Um, the Lions seem to have the better of the Hawks at Princess Park in their round seven clash with a 26-point lead at the 22-minute mark of the third quarter. But the Hawks, again, it got its act together when they needed and steadied to edge back into the game. Then six goals to two in the last quarter sealed a 31-point win. Lethal Lee and Ken Judge with 13 goals between them. Round eight, Hawthorne destroyed Carlton in match of the day at Princess Park. Ten goals in the first quarter and six in the last underlined the Hawks' superiority. Chris Langford played forward and kicked four goals. Swingman. Round nine was an easy 59-point win over the Roos. Kennedy, John Kennedy Jr., kicking seven goals when moved forward. And they're really sharing around the goal kickers aren't here, they? aren't they? Yeah. Uh, round 11, they had an easy win over the Pies at Waverley by 32 points. Although the Pies did stick with them for three quarters. The Hawks again took control when it mattered. Ken Judge with five in this game. Round 12, another matchup between the Essendon team and the Hawks. And this time the Hawks again proved their superiority with a 47-point win. Burton gave the Hawks a good start with two first quarter goals. Uh, the Hawks' defence superb in holding the Dons to two goals four after half time. Just a mountain the Bombers just can't quite climb at yeah. the moment. Yep. There'd be a bit of hoodoo from the grand final. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Round 14, the Hawks showed no mercy to St Kilda at Moorabbin, holding them to four goals for the game while pouring on 19 goals 20 themselves to win by 104 points. Oof. Brereton and Matthews kicked five each, while Matthews also added 37 disposals. Ayers, 35, and ex-Saint Russell Green, 32. Round 15, the Hawks edged out a brave footscray at Princess Park by six goals. Oh, just under six goals. They kicked six goals to one in the final quarter. Gary Ayers, excellent. Michael Tuck playing a blinder. They crushed the Tigers by 88 points at Waverley in round 16. Round 18, they burst from the blocks and swept Carlton aside, posting a seven-goal first quarter for a 39-point break at the change. Um, the Blues did have a fight back, but the Hawks still won by 32 points. Round 20, the Hawks kicked another huge score in a win over the Swans at the SCG. This is the game that was moved from round 22 to round 20. They ran up a big halftime score of 16-13-109 at halftime um, and eventually won by 89 points. Lethal was six, Ken Judge with four. It made up to their sh- for their shock roster to the Ruse in the previous round while also sending a bit of a warning to the rest of the league ahead of finals. Round 21, it was a tight game with the Pies at Princess Park. There's a lot of peas in that. Yeah. Tight game with the Pies at Princess Park. The Hawks trailed in the first half before edging in front in the second to win by 15. Ken Judge again with six goals. Terry Wallace uh, was best on ground for the Hawks, who pleased Alan Jeans, who called that game a real finals-type game. Okay. Um, and the Hawks won their final game of the season, and in doing so denied the Cats a spot in the finals. The game was close at halftime, but they kicked seven goals, seven to nothing in the third to end the Cats' season. Yeah, it wouldn't be no nice feeling coming knowing you've got to come up against the Hawks at the end there for thinking about the Cats. But there you go, great season from... Who won their goal kickings? They had so many goal kickers. They did, they did. It was lethal. With 77, they had Ken Judge kick 63, Dermy kick 50, uh, Peter Curran was 46, and John Ketty Jr. 30. So there was a lot five of... five players above 30. Yeah, it's a lot, isn't and it? And you got three more players there. Like, you got Dipper, Michael Tupp, and Mick McCarthy, who are all, like, 23, 21, 20. Yeah. Like, they're really sharing that around. That's the sign of a good team, isn't it? Isn't it? 
Especially when like when Lee can still kick 77 and there's all that going on behind him. It's pretty incredible. And the Crewman's medal in 84 went to Russell Green. Greeny. Greeny with that Michael Byrne coming in second and Dipper third, I believe it was. Yeah. Now, did I tell you when he... Did I talk about this? That I, used to, I tagged his son. Ru- so Russell Green's son, Stephen Green, used to play for the Vampires. Down yes. Um, and I, I used to be a tagger, so I used to tag him. And I, was, I actually shut him down in a few games. Did an all right job? All like, right job. There yeah, you go. Yeah. There's a few players I could tag and shut down. Ted Richards was the I keep saying, was the one I couldn't. <laughs> no, you couldn't get him? He was just too tall and too strong. <laughs> so you came up against a few of those guys. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a few guys I played against who went on to play league football. Well, there you go. Uh, well, that takes us to the top of the ladder, Timmy. That one team we haven't spoken about? Oh, I wonder who it might be. Mm. Judging by the look on your face, I think you know it is Essendon. It is. With 18 wins, 4 losses and 128.2%. Another superstar uh, leadership team here, coached by Kevin Sheedy, captained by Terry Danner. Yes, they probably don't have the accolades that uh, Jeans and Matthews have at this stage, but... They were. Um, all right, debutants include Peter Banfield, Merv Harbinson, the two big ones I want to talk about, Leon Baker and Mark Harvey. Yes, so Mark Harvey, tough, canny, courageous centre-half back from East Keelor. Uh, he was originally known, actually, as a skillful forward. However, injuries in his later career, particularly to his ankles, meant he was used more as a defender, which reduced the stress on his body. Don't know how, but okay. <laughs> in his role as a defender, he often played as a centre-half back against much taller opponents, making up for his lack of height with his aggressive attack on the football. And Leon Baker. Uh, regarded as a highly skilled and fearless player, Baker started playing senior football quite late by modern standards and was recruited by Swan Districts when he was 24. Uh, his determined, aggressive style has earned him respect as a great competitor, yet he's also, he was also an astute reader of the play. His skills and ability to deliver the ball accurately to teammates further afield have made him a tremendous asset to the Bombers when they picked him up in the 1984 off-season. Yeah, good little pick-up, Leon Baker. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Do you want me to leave, Tim? You have, do you want to do, do this part on your own? Uh, we, we might just make this, this whole season a, a problem. <laughs> All right, the Bombers. What a season. <laughs> uh, round one, defeated the Saints by 37 points at Moorabbin in a shootout between two of the league's young stars. Paul Salmon kicked seven goals, six down one end for the Bombers, while Tony Lockett kicked seven goals, four for the Saints. Oh. Round two, they lost to the Hawks by a goal again. But round three, we beat the visiting Magpies at Windy Hill. The two teams played an even first quarter, but across the next two quarters, the Bombers added 16 goals to the Pies' seven to take a real stranglehold in the game. Salmon kicked eight goals, two, uh, in a 63-point win. The final score of 26 goals, 13. 169 was their highest ever score against the Byers. Yeah, okay. Round four, they took on the Ds at Waverley. Yes, and then defenders cleared the ball out of their backline easily. It was often these unchecked runs to the centre that helped set up scores. Uh, Paul Salmon kicked four goals, seven. His first goal came after three behinds and one out of bounds on the full. And Rover, Tony Bahaja, uh racked up four goals, five, en route to a 35-point win. Round five, an easy seven goal. Round five was an easy win over the Tigers with a seven goal third quarter. All the difference. The Tigers unable to answer the Essendon small men. Uh, Bahaja, Harvey and Leon Baker were excellent. Paul Salmon kicked five. Round six, the Dons had a convincing win over the Lions by 51. Salmon kicked eight. Oh, it's really the Paul Salmon show, isn't yeah, it? Isn't it? Following a woeful match against the Dogs in round seven, in which the Bombers 
Oh, no, we lost. We lost by 22 points to the Dogs. Yeah. Um, the Bombers redeemed themselves in the eyes of Kevin Shitty with a 43-point win over Geelong at Waverley in round eight. They led by 27 points at three-quarter time, then sealed the game with a devastating seven-goal six final quarter. Big Roger Merritt helped shut down Mark Jacko Jackson in the second half, while Salmon, Salmon ended with only two goals, Salmon Madden filling the breach there with five. Round nine against the Blues, Giants spearhead Paul Salmon kicked seven goals to take his tally for the season to 50 after nine, ga- nine games, Charlie. Yeah. They had no answer to the tough Essendon combination and carved, caved in to lose by 47 points. Tony Elshaw was effective for the Bombers. Des English and Bruce Dool were consistent tries for the Blues. Um, the Bombers had to work hard in round 10 to beat the Kangaroos at Arden Street. The Roos grabbed the lead late in the final quarter, but it was Billy Duckworth and Paul Salmon, who had a pretty quiet day, who snatched the lead back for the Dons, the final margin just two points. Round 11, the dogs, the Dons did enough in the opening quarter against the Swans to make the game a done deal. Five goals to one made the game theirs. The final margin, 41. Salmon bagged seven after shuffling through three different opponents during the game. Oh, really? They just kept trying to see if they could close him down. Yeah, round 12 was not a bloody loss to those Hawks. Yeah. Can't get over them. Round 13, the Pies took it up to the Bombers early with twenty point lead, with a 20-point lead near halftime. But the Bombers pegged the lead back and ran away to win by 34 points at the end. But the win came at a cost. Young spearhead Paul Salmon leading the goal-kicking for the league with 63 goals across the first 13 rounds left the field late in the third quarter with a torn lateral ligament in his right Mm -hmm. leg he would miss the rest of the season and he's only 19 unbelievable isn't it round 14 the Bombers ended the Demons six game winning streak with a 43 point victory at Waverley the D's led early but the Dons were too strong with nine goals to three after half time round 15 the Bombers beat the Tigers um it was more of a Tigers loss, though, than a Bombers win. They kicked themselves out of it. They kicked seven goals, 19. Yeah, okay. Um, round 16, the Bombers forwards ripped apart the Lions. Daisy Williams was a ball magnet in the middle, fitting Madden with five goals and helping the Dons to a 61-point win. Round 17 was that round with terrible weather. The Bombers only kicked four goals against the Dogs, but still managed to win. They held the Dogs goalless for the first three quarters, um, and then the Dogs kicked three in the last, but the Bombers held on to win by two points. Sounds like a terrible round, round 17. (laughs) Round 18, the Dons used an eight-goal last term to defeat the Cats at Waverley. Best on ground was winger Merv Neagle, who ducked, weaved, chased, and linked the Bombers between attack and defence and led his team by example. Kevin Walsh was also unbeatable at centre-half back. Round 19, match of the day against the Blues. The Blues turned on a great third quarter when they streaked away from the Bombers and kicked six goals, five to one goal, two for the term and led by 19 points, but... But the Bombers came back, led by Simon Madden, who was winning the Ruck Jewels. They finished too strong for the Blues to win by 12 points. Their ninth straight win over the Blues. Round 20, despite St Kilda's rough tactics, the Bombers got over them by 55 points after leading by 70 at three-quarter time. St Silvio Faschini was reported for striking Mark Harvey in the head in that time when the Saints did make their comeback. They kicked the first five goals of the last quarter, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but they couldn't quite get over them. Terry Danaher and Glenn Hawker were excellent for the Dons. Um, and here's a fun fact. The Dons win over the St Kilda, saw the aggregate score 35 goals 11. No other VFL game, has ever, as far as I know, has ever produced more than three times more goals than behinds. Oh, that's an that's a interesting little nugget. Isn't that? it? Yeah. yeah. Round 21, they were embarrassed by the Swans at the SCG. They lost by 56 points. But Sheedy said it was probably the loss they needed to have after eight straight wins. Yeah. Don't want to get too big for your boots. No. Too many easy wins in a row. Yep. You start forgetting how how hard it can be. Yep. Especially going to the finals. Yep. You don't want to be right. Yep. 
Round 22, the Dons cruise to an easy win in the final round of the season with a first half, half blitz against the Kangaroos at Windy Hill. At one stage, their score was a staggering 26 goals, three. Only to kick one goal, four to end the game and ruin any sort of goal-kicking accuracy record. The Dons running players... Can't be far off anyway, can it? <laughs> Not too far. The Dons running players of Watson, Harvey, Frank Donnell were in complete control for the match. The final margin was 38. And the Bombers finished on top for the first time since 1968. Beautiful. There they are. So our lead goal kicker was Paul Salmon. Those 13, 13 games giving him 63 goals. Still uh, almost 20, no, about 15 clear of Terry Danaher, who was second on the list with 48. Very impressive for a 19-year-old, as you said to me. And the Crichton medal in 84 went to Simon Madden for the fourth time, the uh, second year in a row, 83 and 84. Though. Nice. All right, Charlie, would you like to know the Brownlow medal winner? I would love to. All right, so in 1984, the Brownlow went to Peter Moore of Melbourne. Yes. Um, Ruckman Peter Melbourne, Ruckman Peter Moore, he had to hold back tears as he went up to accept his second Brownlow at Southern Cross Hotel. Um, he was 28 and obviously won his first Brownlow playing for Collingwood. Um, but he said he would trade that medal any day to be out there doing what Essendon and Hawthorne were doing, which was fighting for the Premiership. Um, but he said some, some nice things about Melbourne. He said once he got to Melbourne, so many people wrote him off. Um, and after last, the first season, after 1983, uh, he felt as low as he ever had in his life. And even though he, he felt he had a bad year, he was very grateful for Melbourne for sticking with him and giving him a reason to keep going. Uh, the whole club, including all the players, stuck right with me, so he was happy. And he was also very happy when Ron Barassi made the decision to play him in the ruck rather than elsewhere, because that's, that's the way he feels yeah, most confident. Yeah. Um, he got a total of 24 votes that left him three clear of one of the men who replaced him at Collingwood, David Cloak, and also five clear of teammate Robbie Flower. Also, a new system of counting was used in 84. Um, the votes read out by Jack Hamilton, VFL general manager, ah. on a round-by-round basis for the first time. Really? Okay. Yeah, so before that, it was like all the ones, then all the twos, then all the threes. Yeah, yeah, Now yeah. it's round-by-round, round, which is what we know. It's yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it was funny because Flower and Moore kind of held the lead for most of the night together and then Flower was injured for the end of the season so he was always going to drop off so maybe that helped Moore get those pick up those votes and yeah it's because he wasn't he sharing wasn't playing, them as yeah. much yeah but some good, a good individual effort there by a Melbourne player yeah the second one under Barassi of course yes yeah. great mm. which gets us actually before we get to finals Coles goals okay um I'm going to guess Hawthorne. Correct. 395 goals across this season. Yeah. They, I mean, they had just so many people kicking bags. Yes, we, yeah, we talked about that, didn't yeah, we? so had to be, didn't it? All right, let's get to the finals. Let's get to those finals. So our first final uh, took place on Saturday the 8th of September between Hawthorne and Carlton at VFL Park in front of 55,947 people, Timmy. Yes, Hawthorne versus Carlton. Uh, the Hawks cruised into the second semi-final here with a solid 30-point victory over the Blues. Yes. Uh, while Hawthorne never looked in danger of defeat, Carlton maintained the pressure right up until the final siren. And for about 10 minutes into the third quarter, the Blues, some of their old style, but the Hawks tightened its defence and kept the firm grip on the game. Warren Ralph, breakout star for the Blues, had kicked all the Blues' five goals up until half-time uh, and ended up with eight for the day. Oh. Uh, defender Rod Austin, Carlton defender Rod Austin, was poleaxed by Dipper in the bruising opening term and his day ended early with a broken jaw 
And for the Hawks, uh, Lee Matthews kicked six and Russell Green was great around the ground with 34 disposals. Oh, that's huge. Uh, and then so the, our second game on the next day, the Sunday, the 9th. The very first Sunday The very final. first Sunday final, yeah. At the G in front of 73,994 people, we had the original rivalry of Collingwood <laughs> yes. and Fitzroy. Indeed. Before I get to that game, um, there were some issues with the game being played on a Sunday from a legal point of view because the players demanded Sunday pay. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, They're yeah, entitled okay. to it, aren't they? Yeah. So they threatened to actually strike the finals, strike and boycott the finals. Um, but that all that issue was resolved. Thank God. Thank God. So the Lions were confident of toppling Collingwood after six wins in a row. Mm-hmm. But for the third time in six seasons, the Pies proved too strong in a finals game against Fitzroy. In front of 74,000 fans at the MCG, the Lions started slowly but nudged in front by quarter time by a point. There was only four point, they were only four points down at three-quarter time after having six more scoring shots. But perhaps the effort of winning... So many games in the second half yeah. of the season finally took its toll and the Pies destroyed them in the last quarter, similar to what happened with Richmond, which we yeah, talked about. they ran their um, race. Yeah, so for the Pies, for the Lions, Rendell was the best with 19 disposals, 10 marks and 26 hitouts. Um, Paul Ruse also took a magnificent mark in this game. But Pies too strong. Uh, the renaissance continues for them. Yeah, it'd be very disappointing for Fitzroy after a great middle to end of season, right? Yeah, absolutely. But sometimes the momentum just runs out, doesn't it? It does. Uh, so the next weekend we had uh, two semi-finals: Carlton versus Carlton versus Collingwood first uh, at VFL Park in front of seventy thousand odd people, uh, and um, so full of emotion and tension. Carlton's forwards, with uh, Mark McClure being the exception, were overshadowed by their Collingwood opponents. In the centre of the ground, Jeff Reigns was in complete control. Fierce physical pressure and the speed of the game saw lots of fundamental errors occur. Derek Shaw came off the interchange bench and marked everything in sight. And when the ball did get past Derek, Mickey Taylor turned it away. The turning point in this game was in the third quarter, where Collingwood established a bit of a lead, and more importantly, the psychological edge going into the last quarter. Uh, they kicked four goals to Carlton's what two points in that mm. quarter. Uh, to Carlton's credit, they kept on pressure till the final siren, but ultimately lost by 25 points. Yeah. And yeah, that Collingwood momentum is just kept on going. So Collingwood into, Carl- a, into a prelim. And Carlton out in straight sets. Again. Yeah. And yes, so in that, that second semi was Essendon versus Hawthorne. So on the Sunday the, again. The, on the Sunday again, the grand final replay from last year. Yes. Yes, the grand final replay. Bitter mm. rivals. Essendon can't seem to get over the Hawks. Uh, so Essendon's had the week off as well. Well, yeah. awaiting the winner of this Hawthorne, awaiting the winner of the Hawthorne Carlton game. Uh, and this game was an absolute cracker. One of the greats, apparently. It's kind of gone under the radar. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this game, seldom did more than a handful of points separate these great rivals. The margin was two points at the end until Rodney had goal on the siren. So the eight points doesn't quite show you how close, close it intense it was. It was tough, but still attacking game with plenty of goals. Uh, Dipper started on, started on the wing with four goals. Lee Matthews and Rod Lester-Smith sharing six. Leon Baker kicked three for the Dons with Timmy Watson and Terry Danaher also playing very well. But the Dons just not quite getting there again. Yeah, just couldn't three quite get times, over the line. Three times this season the Hawks have beaten the Bombers. Yes. And it feels like it's gotten a bit closer every time, right? Uh, the first game was like a goal. I think the second one was about 57 points. Okay. And this one's R- Right points. there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so Essendon have to come come back again the next week against Collingwood at VFL Park on the Saturday. And, uh, can I just sit back and enjoy this? Yes, you certainly okay, so can. Collingwood came in kind of expected to give this a real shake. 
They'd won those two games, the two yep. finals. Essendon had lost their only final. Mm-hmm. So you'd go in thinking... We're a chance here. The Pies are a big chance. Yep. Bombers came out kicking eight goals one in the first quarter to the Pies, <laughs> two goals four. Um, interestingly enough, ex-Essendon player Ronnie Andrews kicked the first goal for the Pies. But that's where the fun ended for Collingwood because Essendon recovered... Um, to lead by 84 points at halftime. Yep. 17-6-3-6. During the main break, the Isles were awash with departing Collingwood supporters. Retreating from defeat. Uh, The slaughter continued in the second half up until the final siren when the final margin was 133 points, Charlie. Still still the biggest victory in an an AFL final, VFL AFL final. Baker had kicked six classy goals, Vanderhaar with five, even though he was off injured just before halftime and didn't reappear. Just absolute domination by the Bombers there. So let's just run through those scores. It was (laughs) 28-6-174 to Collingwood's 5-11-41. So Essendon could have stopped playing at quarter time and still had a better score. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Jimmy, you're loving that. That's great. Oh, I am, and there's there's fallout from this, but we'll talk about that after we get after yes. the grand final. So, that grand final, the second in a row, Essendon Hawthorne at the MCG in front of ninety two thousand six hundred eighty five. One of the smallest, the grand smallest finals. grand final since nineteen fifty seven. Really? Okay, there you go. Uh, so, let's find out. What happened here? Welcome, Terry. Congratulations. Now, we want to start today's chat by taking you back to 1983, probably something you don't want to relive. Um, The team dinner after that horrible loss to the Hawks. Was that the spark that lit the flame for today's victory? No doubt. The planning for today started that night. I remember that night. He wanted us to feel the hurt, to feel the pain, and use that for the coming season and for today. But was it something that came up throughout the year, like the memories of that game and what you guys put, put yourselves through? No, not at all. I think after that night, it was never mentioned again. But you must have known that you were a good chance to make it back to the grand final. We started to believe we had the side to win it. Sheeds didn't leave a stone unturned to ensure we didn't stumble. We worked that little bit harder and we were super keen to make amends to the year before. Just to win the bloody thing after four to five years was very satisfying. Now, the team had a great season, but the Hawks continued to dominate you across the season, beating you twice during the, the home and away season and then in that semi-final as well. Uh, they were the measuring stick. We got close in the semi-final. Sheeds was great. He was very, very positive. He said we were that, that close to beating the reigning premiers. They're the best and we are this close. So we took confidence and knew we were getting closer and closer to them. And as a group, we knew we were good enough to beat them. Now, days after that epic semi-final loss to the Hawks, Kevin Sheedy questioned some of the Hawks' behaviour during the game, and, and I guess during the Carlton Hawthorne game as well, asking whether the team were sniffing an illegal liquid stimulant during breaks in the game. Yeah, that was an interesting ploy by Sheeds. I'm not sure whether that was to ruffle the Hawks' feathers or he legitimately thought they were on something. How did the players feel about uh, those accusations? Well, I know the board was livid. The whole thing was page one news. I know the board publicly apologised to Hawthorne and was privately angry with Sheedy. I'm not even sure what the outcome of the investigation was. I suppose it doesn't matter now. Well, on that, it was rumoured police put the trainers who administered the magic liquid, I think it was Bob Yeoman, under surveillance. It was quickly established that he was actually, he was no Pablo Escobar. Sounds about right. <laughs> and there were some interesting selection choices with the team. You know, young Mark Harvey and uh, Mark Thompson both in at the cost of seasoned players like um, Tony... 
Bahaja, uh, Stephen Carey and Brian Wood. Yeah, Tony was unlucky. He had a crook knee and he wouldn't take the risk. That was a big call because he deserved to play. Now, the build-up on game day was probably much more predictable because you'd obviously been through this the year before. Yeah, spot on. Although some of the positional things were still being sorted out. I think Roger starting in the ruck was a last-minute decision. So you led the team out to that roaring and cheering of thousands in the G. Uh, what was your message to the players before the game? Oh, you know, I just said, let's have a crack, boys, and told them to get it and kick it to me. But the Hawks were the better team right out of the blocks with two goals on the board before a bomber had even touched it. Oh, they just went bang, bang, and I thought, oh, geez, here we go again. It was like 83 all over again. That little seed of doubt started to pop in your brain, but thankfully it didn't turn out that way. We settled down a bit and started to play pretty strong sort of football. As the game went on, I thought oh, we started to take control. Mate, so looking at that first quarter, the Bombers really didn't fire like you wanted and the Hawks just got off to a really good start. It felt like in the first half we'd get it forward for no score, then they'd get it forward for a goal. Yet the floodgates never opened. So it was the Hawks by 21 at quarter time. The second quarter was much tighter, less open with only the Hawks kicking two goals, uh, you guys kicked one. Although you were wasteful in front of goal, you must have been happy with the quarter though. It was very notable that our work rate was still there. Even though they were putting the score on the board, there was a lot of persistence. We didn't drop off. We kept attacking and working and grinding away. Even in the middle stages when they had the edge on us, we still had that run. While we were getting into the forward line, we weren't quite finishing it off. The Hawks led by 25, but it probably wasn't as reflective as what had just happened in the game. We weren't going as badly as the scoreboard said, and that year we had come back a lot of times. And even though Hawthorne had beaten us three times that year, we knew we could get them. But surely there were nerves at half-time. My word, there was. There were a few fellas in the toilets having a quick ciggy with the club doctor, if that's any indication of the feeling. So kicking just one goal seven in the second, did that have a demoralising effect on the players? or And did you discuss that at the long break? Oh, naturally enough, Kevin stressed that. You know, the forward line had to straighten it up and try and put a few more through in the second half. But I think that resulted in just Hawthorne's pressure, you know. They've got a fairly strong defensive line, you know, and it certainly made it very hard for us because we didn't have the forward line very open there in the early stages. And whether that was a reason for the ball not coming down quite quickly and directly enough, or what, I don't know. But a lot of the shots that we did have were kicked under pressure or were snapped, you know, whereas Hawthorne had a lot of direct shots at goal and put them through. Now, things started to turn after halftime, didn't they? Yeah, well, in the third, Simon started winning it down to our Rovers. It was coming in more quickly. We had a lot of play in the third quarter. More shots, but couldn't put the score on the board. Three-quarter time, we were still about four goals down. OK, so three-quarter time. From our point of view, uh, Sheedy just looked like he decided to throw out the playbook and try something completely new. So take us inside that huddle. What was he saying? Sheedy moved everybody around. There was that innovation thing, you know. Sometimes it comes off. I was in the back line. Duckworth and Weston went forward. Hawker was freed up. Bradbury was shifted up to the wing. And what was the message from the coach? I mean, and the feeling of the group? It was all about how hard we had worked to get to that stage and we weren't going to throw it away. Billy Stephen had recruited a group of us in 1977 and then Sheeds came and made us aware we had potential but needed to work harder. He also made that group realise that we were getting on a bit and had to grab the opportunity. Did he say anything that stood out to you? He kept telling us they were gone, saying stuff like, look at them, they have nothing left. And what about tactic-wise? 
He convinced us we were running all over them, but we still needed to get the first couple of goals to truly believe that was the case. And that last quarter started, it seemed like exactly like you would have wanted. Sure did. Simon Hill hit the ball down, got it and banged it forward to Daisy Williams, who gets it to Leon Baker. Leon gathers it, does a U-turn and kicks a goal. Leon is a really cool, calm, collected footballer, yet he starts dancing around getting excited. When Bakes kicked that first goal, we lifted, no doubt. And the pendulum had swung your way. It sure had. We had that momentum. Bradbury kicked a ripper goal over the back and it just rolled and rolled. We just kept on scoring. We started to swarm all over them. So, mate, tell us, what went through your mind in that last quarter when Essendon hit the front and were, in fact, I think, five points up and that ball came down and Curran marked and you gave him a 15-minute penalty and then Hawthorne hit the front again? It was a very bad mistake on my behalf in giving him that 15-metre penalty. And I think that goal put him back in front, and it certainly was disastrous as far as I was concerned. And I wasn't too happy at all because I felt like, you know, the guys up forward were doing so well. And I took Paul Weston's place, and he went to centre-half forward and really played well up there. And for me, just to give up that stupid 15-metre penalty away like that, which resulted in a goal, I was a fair bit worried. But to me, teammates... They just kept slogging away and got the ball down there. And I think Roger Merritt took that big mark in the goal square and got a second goal again. We just continued on with it. Another incident during that last quarter was Kevin Walsh, who was knocked uh, senseless in a collision with Robert Dippier Domenico. Uh, This didn't help the Hawks' cause, it only spurred the Dons on. Well, bloody typical Dipper, wasn't it? But we knew it would stop their run, and that's exactly what it did. Walsh is okay, by the way. (sighs) Sorry, it might be hard to pin, but when did you know you had it? I'm not sure I could narrow it down to a time for you, but there was a point in the last when I was running back with Simon next to me. He had this massive smile on his face as he looked across, pumping his fist and saying, we've got this, we've got this. It was the best feeling. Well, you spent the last quarter basically watching the show, didn't you? I was in the back line watching us kick. What was it in the end? Nine? In the last, thinking, geez, this is all right. And when the siren went, how was that feeling? Oh, it's just the feeling of relief, you know. When the siren is gone and you're fortunate enough to be on top, you're excited, you're elated, you're surprised, you're relieved. A whole mix of emotions, but it's a shared experience. Probably all the more sweet after being on the other side the year before. Had we lost, it would have been devastating after being humiliated in 83 and losing elimination finals in 81 and 82. We could have been scarred by it. Instead, we knew we would be partying very hard. And we all know that uh, Billy Duckworth was awarded the Norm Smith, but who else stood out in your eyes? We know Simon Madden and Leon Baker were instrumental in that comeback. <laughs> yeah, well, not to put them down, but people keep thinking Simon had a big quarter, but he only had two kicks, which were both centre clearances that Leon got onto for goals. I think Leon and he both had just kicked two for the quarter, but if people remember them as having more... And Sheedy must be proud. Yeah, well, after the last four years, I think Kevin's been working at getting the right type of players into the club, which will make us a force, and today it all happened. It didn't happen from the very start, but we just kept chipping away, and we're fortunate enough to play terrifically well today. Now, you talk about the team becoming a force. Will we be, will, do you reckon we'll be talking to you again next year? <laughs> I bloody hope so. Well, Terry, special day for you as captain, achieving a dream, I'm sure. It's a memory I'll always cherish. It was impossible to have been involved in a better grand final. Right, thanks for the chat, Terry. Anytime, fellas. What a win. Yeah. What a win. Just um, as you said, as you said, like just so good to get one back after after last year. Like it just sort of 
it wipes that terrible taste out, surely. Yeah, absolutely. So nine goals, six in the last quarter to two goals, one. What a last quarter. It brings back shades of, uh, was it Essendon beating Melbourne in 1946? When yep. they kicked like nine goals in the third quarter to take control of the That's game. That's right, yep, yeah. yep. Shop early and avoid the rush. <laughs> uh, so some, uh, some goal scorers from that game. So we got for the Essendon... Uh, Leon Baker with four, Duckworth and Timmy Watson two, Danaher, Bradbury, Thompson, Merritt, Weston and Neagle with one. For the Hawks, Matthews with four, Robertson and Burton with two, Loveridge, Tuck, Judge and Curran with one. Best for the Bombers were Glenn Hawker, Baker, Duckworth, Watson, Clark and Harvey. But amazing the guts to run over a team like Hawthorne as in that last quarter. Like they are, they're not a team to be um, to be trifled with. Like no, and, and how as, do you do it? And as Terry Danaher said, like they came out of that semi-final knowing they were like that far away. Yeah. So they had the belief. Yeah. Yeah. So like there's losses, but then there's t- those tiny losses can sometimes prove that actually we can match it with this team. And yeah, it's and one one that. kick the other way, and it's done. Yeah. And for Sheedy to throw the magnets around like that, it's not something that has really happened, especially when it was like when it was. I mean. It, was still close, yeah. right? So, yeah, to take a risk like that is, yeah, huge. All right, so here's some other interesting facts from that. Mm-hmm. Essendon breaks a 19-year flag drought. Yes. Which had been their longest. We are now currently in their longest one. Yeah. <laughs> um, Essendon's Paul Weston was a member of six losing grand finals for Glenelg in the SANFL. Oh, really? He lost 74, 75, 77, 81, 82. Came to Essendon and lost in 83. So he'd lost seven grand finals. So he felt like he had the hoodoo. So he finally won one in, That's uh, huge. in 84. Um, it also breaks a monopoly of flags by Carlton Hawthorne, North Melbourne and Richmond, stretching back to St Kilda's 66 flag. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, the other thing I wanted to quickly wrap up was the fallout at Collingwood. After this? After, after, the, after their loss the in prelim. the prelim. Yep. Um, John Cahill got the sack. He hadn't met expectations, even though he'd brought Collingwood from out of the finals to a prelim. He hadn't lived he, up to what he, they expected. Well, he bowed to pressure because I guess they'd, they'd fallen out away so much and the administration were just on his back constantly, so it was easy for him just to leave. Yeah, and like it's hard, isn't it? Because a prelim, making a prelim is a big deal, but when you get put away in a prelim mm. like that, um, it's almost like, well, what was the point of getting there? Yeah. You know, that it shows how, how big the gap is between you and the winner. Yes. Right. Yeah. It's like um. It's like those I grand mean, finals these days where you you make it but then you get smashed. Or was it twenty eighteen or nineteen when we, no when uh, Melbourne got smashed by West Coast oh, in the prelim twenty eighteen yeah, and there was a lot of pressure on Goodwin then yeah and you came well, you came back eventually mm. the season mm-hmm. after you didn't no you bottomed out yeah second last wasn't it um other results around the league we've got the D's winning the reserves flag beating Carlton eighty one forty five. Kangaroos taking out the under-19s, 121 to Richmond, 53. And the McClellan Trophy going to the Hawks. Yes. Yes. Of course. Um, some retirees. We've got some big names. Gary Dempsey and David Dench of North Melbourne. Jeff Southby of Carlton. Ronnie Andrews of Essendon and Collingwood. Brian Peake, the helicopter man himself from Geelong. Gary Wilson at Fitzroy. Gary Sidebottom, also at Fitzroy, but had played for St Kilda and Geelong. Bruce Duperuzel, one of yeah, our favourite Super names. Duper. Super Robbie Muir played his last game. Merv Keane at Richmond and Calvin Moore at Hawthorne finishing up as well. Wrapping up this year, Charlie. Yeah. Let's talk about it. So, yeah. Premiers. The Premiers, of course, Essendon. 
of the Dons. <laughs> uh, Brownlow Medal. Uh, Peter Moore of Melbourne. <laughs> yes. Like um, leading goal kicker. Uh, so the Coleman was Bernie Quinlan it of Fitzroy. Should we, add, should we add the Norm Smith to this wrap-up as well? I think we should. Yeah. Now we've got it. Billy Duckworth, Duckworth of Essendon, of course. Um, the highest score was Carlton's 31 goals, 13 199 in round one. Mm-hmm. Most points for the season, Lee Matthews kicked 46. Uh, now, Rookie of the Year. Okay. I, I need your help with this. Yeah, yeah. Talk, talk to me, talk to me. So, I've got Paul Salmon as my Rookie of the Year. Yep. He only played 13 games. Mm-hmm. I've got him slightly ahead of Ross Smith of North Melbourne and Paul Hawke of Sydney, who both played almost a full season. But Paul Salmon led... All those rookies in marks obviously kicked 63 goals yeah. and had 84 hitouts. Whereas Paul Hawke of Sydney, he had more disposals, but that was kind of only, it's, and specifically handballs, 180 handballs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we've got Ross Smith, who had a lot of kicks. I gathered a lot of ball, a lot of the ball as well. Um, but the I, I guess I put Paul Salmon there because he just had such an impact across 13 yeah, games. Yeah, I was going. I was going to say I think. You've got to you've got to look at the impact they have when they're on the ground. I think it's I think it's salmon. I think it's fair. A rising a rising star yeah. doesn't mean you know you're you play all Certain every game. Games, yeah, yeah. It's just when did you get the votes? You know, no. I I would I'd agree with that. Okay, Paul Salmon is yeah. my rising yeah. star. There Thank you go. You for clarifying. There was one other thing um, that uh, I don't know whether we've mentioned before, but the VFL. Players Association MVP award oh, has okay. started but, up. Ah, oh, yes, which is now named after Lee Matthews. Which is the Lee Matthews Trophy because he now. won it in '83, so that's why they named it. Yes, after him. yes. So he won it for the first time, right? Yes. In '83. Yeah. This year, in '84, it was awarded to Russell Green of Hawthorne. Okay, thank you. Thank mm. you for letting us know. Um, best name, Charlie. There's a few. I've, I've narrowed it down to a few there. Okay. Uh, God, there's some rippers here, aren't there? I don't mind Honeybun. No, I was going to say, I think it's got to be David Honeybun. It's between... Yeah, no, I mean, it is. it is. It's David Honeybun, yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right, and that premiership tally list as of 1984, we've got Carlton on 14, Collingwood 13, Essendon 13, Melbourne 12, not far behind, mm-hmm. Richmond 10, Fitzroy 8, Geelong 6, Hawthorne 5, South Melbourne 3, also the Swans 3, I suppose we should say now. Yes. North Melbourne 2... One to Footscray, one to St Kilda. Mm. We're in that era, though, where everyone has a flag. Yep, we're still there. We're still there, yep, for a few for more a little years. Longer. Yeah, a little, a little, a little while longer. longer. Uh, it's a good time. Everyone, everyone's got to win. <laughs> well, we might have to start changing these tallies, Tim, if, uh, if Colin Carter's got anything to say you about read the book it. yet? I haven't read the book well, yet. Don't talk to me then. I'm very excited to talk, to talk more about it. Um, so, yeah. Thank you for tuning in. We'll probably have, I think, one more seasonal 1985 episode. Yes, before the season itself starts. And then once the AFL season kicks in, or just before actually, we'll we'll switch to our new format. Can't wait. I'm very excited about it. I hope you guys are too. Me too. Uh, So until uh, 1985, Timmy. Hooroo. Hooroo. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website, www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.